Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. As you turn there, I would just just remind you this morning of, as we depart, if you're a Grace member, we do have the Karis offering, and again, just a pocket change offering for our members as a way to support those amongst us who are members of Grace, to care for them in times of need and difficulty they may encounter, so just remind you of that this morning. In John 17, Jesus prays for his people. When he prays for his people, he prays, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word this morning, our prayer is that you would use it to sanctify us in truth, to conform us into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. We live in a day that the value of life continues to be undermined, it continues to be attacked, it continues to be even perhaps redefined. And we come today on a day that many set apart as Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we consider the value and the meaning, the, the sacredness of human life. And we do so today coming and, and knowing and understanding, I think most of us in here, recognizing that, that you could say that there is a war being waged on the sacredness, the sanctity, the value of human life. Many of you may have come across at some point in your education a, a book or work entitled The Art of War by the Chinese military general Sun Tzu. And he writes in there, he says this, he says, The supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. The supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. I, I would say in many ways we have fallen prey to this strategy in regards to the war on the sanctity of human life. See, we, we live in a day that, that you're well aware. A, a day in which babies are killed in the womb for the sake of oftentimes simple convenience and choice. We live in a day in which tests are run to determine whether a baby in the womb would be free of defects. And if it's found not to be so, then pregnancies are encouraged to be terminated, babies cast aside. We live in a day in which suicide rates have increased to the highest rate in the past 80 years. They continue to rise so that currently it's estimated that one person in the U.S. takes his or her own life every 11 minutes. We live in a day in which people with terminal diseases or senior adults experiencing difficulties and diseases such as Alzheimer's and dementia are encouraged to end their life for it's run its course. It's over. No more of real contribution to society. How has this come about? Has it come through these very focused attacks 
that you see coming? Has it come through something where people say, hey, here is what we're doing. Here's a clear battle line drawn that we're going to come up against, and this is what is going to happen and how we're going to bring about these shifts and changes. I, I would contend no. I would contend that the war on the sanctity of human life has been waged and has come about exactly how Sun Tzu said. A way in which the, the fight is never engaged in, the, the act of war, the enemy has been subdued. In this case, we, seen as the enemy of, of those who would seek other agendas, the enemy has been subdued without fighting. I would say this war has been waged subtly, quietly, strategically, in the realms of education, entertainment, politics, bringing shifts in worldviews and attacks on the sanctity of life. So much so that God, His Word, and His people have, been com- have become seen as the enemy. And those who are against the agenda, against the narrative, simply because we stand for life. It's a war that's been waged exactly as Sun Tzu advised. And we've seen this in, in four foundational shifts, I think, over the past few years. Four foundational shifts that really build off of each other. And before we get into Psalm 139, I want to just share these with you and and help you think about what the context is of our world. The first shift is this, the rise of secularism and those who do not believe in God. We've seen this shift in just the rise of of people who would say they don't believe in God, the nuns, so to speak. And when when God, the author and giver of life, is removed... When he's taken out of the equation, when you're stripped of that foundation, life becomes accidental, it becomes negotiable, it becomes devalued. It becomes scientific and divorced from God's purposes and from God's ethical truths and foundations. This was step one. Remove God from the equation, which leads to this second shift. The second shift is the loss of absolute truth. The sound ethical foundations are replaced with situational moral relativism. The removal of God brought the loss of truth. Why? Because God is truth. And He has revealed truth when He makes it known and gives us that foundation. When He is taken away, then you have the loss of truth. And when truth is lost, what happens? Man does what he wants. He does what is right in his own eyes which results in cultural chaos and moral disaster. Just look no further than the book of Judges. If you have any question what happens when man operates simply based on what is right in his own eyes, read the book of Judges. It's what we're told over and over again. It's what we see over and over again. Man rebelling, doing what's right in his own eyes, and there's absolute chaos and moral depravity. It's what we see in our own day. The third shift As a result of that is we see this increasing focus on individualism and materialism. It leads to a prioritization of convenience and comfort. In many many ways, this idea that I might sacrifice my own convenience, my own comfort, my own life for the life of another that perhaps crimps my style because I need to care for them in the end of their days or or because a, a pregnancy comes upon me that I was not planning That idea of sacrifice is largely lost in our day. In the absence of God, the the loss of truth, people begin making decisions on self. What will be most convenient? What will bring me the most comfort? What will help me achieve my goals? 
And if something con- conflicts with one of those things, if it, it gets in the way of my convenience, my comfort, my goals, then life can easily be devalued and become very negotiable in question. The fourth shift that we see then as a redefining of what it means to be a person. A redefinition of personhood. Now why is that a shift from the first three? Why is it that the removal of God, the loss of truth, and the kind of increasing focus on individualism and materialism, why does it bring about the redefining of what constitutes a person? Well, it's because man within himself has a recognition of moral truth, moral right and wrong, as much as man wants to suppress it. Romans 1 talks about man suppressing the truth, not just being ignorant of it, not being just unaware, but actually suppressing it. And man suppresses that truth, that that there is right and wrong, and that a, a child in the womb is indeed a child. Man suppresses that. Man knows that. I think an easy example of that is in our, in our own land, our own laws. If you look at in our, our law, it's the Unborn Victims of Violence Act of 2004. What that stipulates is that if a, a child in utero is, is, dies as a result and a, a pregnant mother dies as a result of a, an act, that is counted as two murders. So if a pregnant woman is, is murdered, that's two counts of murder. Why? Because they understand that that child in utero is indeed a life. It is a child. And so we see that. We can just look at that and go, okay, people still understand that. They still know that. It's still argued in the court of law. We see that. So, so it, it presents this dilemma. If we've got the first three shifts, now we have this dilemma that we still know that that's a life in the womb. So what's the solution? Man has to figure out a way in his mind to justify the taking of that life. And the way that they justify that is to separate what constitutes a person. So that in the womb, it is no longer a person, it's just a fetus. It's no longer a life being taken. Now, we have to decide when does a person become a person? And that line is typically drawn now based upon one's ability to think. That idea is rooted in the philosophy, I think, therefore I am. It finds its roots all the way back there, right? So if I can't think, then I'm not. So personhood has become to be defined as one or the ability to think and function independently. That is what determines personhood. So, so what that means is that while a baby at conception is entirely human and possesses every genetic piece it needs for his or her life, some would say, oh no, that's not a baby. It's not a child. It's not a little boy. It's not a little girl. It's just a fetus. It's not a person because it is unable to think, unable to reason, unable to function independently. So it's not a person. One bioethicist wrote this. Nine months of development leaves the human embryo far short of the emergence of anything that can be called a person. How could he say that? Well, it's 
because he defines a person as this in the same article. He defines a person as a creature capable of valuing its own existence. He can think about and value his own existence. So, he says non-persons or potential persons cannot be wronged in this way because death does not deprive them of anything they value. That's scary. It's grievous. I mean, essentially, what you see in our day is that both God and biology set aside, set aside for the sake of convenience and what I would say and what I would want and what my choice might be. The issue of abortion in particular, I would say today, it is not an issue of faith versus science, God versus science. They cast both out the door. And let's just redefine what we would say is a person. That's the shifts that have occurred. That's what leaves us gathered today. And what I would say, church, we need a revival and a work of God to come upon us, His people, and our nation that would lead our nation back to Him, the truth of His Word, the valuing of life itself. And so today we just turn to Psalm 139 to look and to reorient us, to bring us back to that. Psalm 139 is a a psalm of David. It's It's a psalm that provides a theological anchor that is deeply personal and practical for us when we think about this issue, the sanctity of life. What we're going to do is we're just going to look at the psalm. We are going to read it in its entirety. I'm going to give you a, just kind of a brief overview to hit some of the big theology of the psalm and then give you four truths about life that we see coming out of that, four implications about life. Let's read Psalm 139 together. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. Lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book was written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Oh, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. As you read Psalm 139, one of the things that you should note is how deeply personal it is. It's deeply personal. Just, just look, just skim over the psalm. Look at how often David uses first person. I, me. It is deeply personal as he writes it. One commentator observed that it's, it's both theologically robust and deeply practical. Even the heading, you look at the heading, what is the purpose of the psalm? It's to the choir master, a psalm of David. The purpose of the psalm is to be sung in worship. It's for the, the people of God to come and to, to sing. And you know the importance of songs. It, it, it states what we, what we believe. It's doctrinal stances. It, it helps us to learn truths of Scripture, truths about God, and to declare them and lift high His name. And this psalm was meant to be sung and to be worshipped God. Another scholar wrote this. That is a beautiful way of describing Psalm 139. He says that when David wrote Psalm 139, he, he did not write about mere omniscience, but a knowledge which knows Him altogether. Not mere omnipresence, but a presence which he can nowhere escape. Not mere creative power, but a, a power which shaped him. Fill and thrill David's soul. The deeply personal understanding of God's knowledge, his presence, his power, filled and thrilled David's soul in Psalm 139. So I want to just point out three kind of big picture theological truths from Psalm 139 that we need to get this morning. The first one is this found in verses 1 through 6. The theological truth that God knows. God knows. This is omniscience. It is to say that, that God has comprehensive, absolute knowledge. It is detailed. It is thorough. It is exhaustive. God knows all things. There is nothing that God does not know. That's why in Psalm 147, verse 5, we hear the psalmist say, His understanding is beyond measure. It's beyond measure, beyond anything we can wrap our minds around, is the understanding, the knowledge of the Lord. 
Or Paul, when he, he gets to the end of Romans 1 through 11, he's been speaking of, of the theology of what, what God did in saving us. Right? 11 chapters worth of theology. And at the end, he comes and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Oh, the knowledge of God is vast. Far beyond anything we can comprehend. He is omniscient. He knows all things. And David doesn't just just gaze at at God's wisdom and knowledge from afar. David sees it as deeply personal, deeply intimate, relational. He looks and and he knows that God is absolutely, fully, intimately knowledgeable of him. He knows David to the core of who he is. If you just look at verses 1 through 6, you'll note six times that David refers to some aspect or some part of God's knowledge. You see in, there in verse 1 that God knows him personally. In verse 2, God knows the comings and goings of his life. In verse 2 again, God knows his very thoughts. In verse 3, he knows his paths and his ways. In verse 4, he knows his words even before he speaks them. God knows. Know, known, discern, acquainted with, know, knowledge. David is rejoicing in God's Knowledge, we are fully known to God. We need to know that. We need to understand that. That He knows our greatest fears. He knows our great hopes, our insecurities. He knows our joys. He knows our temptations. He knows the sin that we battle day in and day out. He knows our faithfulness when no one else sees it. He knows our moral failures and our rebellion that no one knows about. He knows all things. He knows all things. You know what's interesting about Psalm 139? Did you notice how it's bookended? Did you notice how it started and began? In the very beginning, in verse 1, he says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. He declares that truth. He rests in that truth. But then at the end, what does he do? He turns to pray. Oh God, search me and know my heart. The truth of God's knowledge leads David ultimately to pray for God then to do what he knows. To search me. God, search me. Know me. You've already searched me. You know me. There's nothing I can hide. So God, do it. Why? Because I want you to reveal any rebellious, sin, grievous ways in me. Reveal it. Show it to me. We need to know what David knows. We need to know that God knows all things. And he does not only know all things academically as though it's out there and we can keep it a distance, but God knows all things about us and our lives. He knows the situation that might have brought someone sitting in here to consider abortion. He knows exactly what went on. He knows exactly where you're at or where you were at. God knows the the loneliness that causes you to question your own life's value. He knows that. He knows the fear that you have that, that is so hard. Every morning you wake up and you wake up in fear of losing your memory because you can feel it slipping and it scares you to death. And God knows that. He knows it. He knows the pain. He he knows the pain that you experience. As you watch a loved one who you've had so many memories with, forget those very memories. Or as you visit that loved one who is no longer even able to speak. 
He knows that pain. He knows the guilt. He knows the guilt you feel over past decisions that you hope no one finds out about. Past decisions that you come to Sanctity of Life Sunday, every Sunday, every year, and you experience guilt. You struggle with that. It's a battle because of a decision you made, whether it was willingly or you were forced into it. God knows. God knows. There's nothing he does not know. Verses 1 through 6. The second theological truth we need to see is in verses 7 through 12. That God is present. God's present. So he knows. He's omniscient. He is present. He's omnipresent. He's always present. He's spirit. Scripture reveals he is no vain idol that's confined to a temple or constrained to a mountaintop somewhere that we have to go and see. He has no spatial limits. He is present in all places. So he tells through Jeremiah 23, 23 to 24, God says this. He says, am I a God at hand? Declares the Lord and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not feel heaven and earth? Declares the Lord. God's saying, listen, I'm everywhere. There's nowhere you can go outside of my presence. That's why David prays it. Where shall I go? Where shall I flee? There's nowhere. God is there. He is presence. It's the foundation. Why, Why God can speak great assurance and comfort to his people and say, I will be with you. Right? It's a great comfort and assurance to his people that he will be with us. There's no moment, no place in which we find God absent. And David beautifully expresses this in the psalm. He does so really using extremes, right? He, he says, where, where can I go? If I go to heaven, if I go to Sheol, the, the wings of the morning, the uttermost parts of the sea, anywhere. It doesn't matter where I go. You are there. Where shall I go? Where shall I flee? You're there. You're there. Even there. Even there. Oh, David understands. He recognizes that God is there with us. Even in the darkest day, he talks about. Verse 11 and 12. Even in the darkest day, there seems to be no light. Well, God is there for because darkness is not dark in view of God. God is light. John 1. Read John 1 later today. God is light. The darkness cannot defeat him. It cannot overpower him. God is there. Listen, this is deeply important. When we think about sanctity of life issues, the the truth that God is present is deeply important. He is there in every situation you find yourself in. There's never a moment that God is not there, that God does not see. Whatever situation that is. It doesn't matter your location. It doesn't matter your ability or lack of ability to think and remember. It doesn't matter. It's not based upon your ability to function independently. None of those things change God's presence. He is there. He is present in every situation that you encounter. He is there. He's there. 
The third theological truth is in verse 13 to 18. 13 to 18, God creates, God forms. It's a great display of God's power, His omnipotence. Verse 13, He he begins by saying, "For, For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God knows all things about us and he is with us in all ways. Why? He was intimately involved from the beginning. From the beginning, he was intimately involved forming and knitting and making and weaving us together. Well, the psalmist declares later, Psalm 147, verse 5, Great is the Lord and abundant in power. He rejoices in his power. He praises his power. What did we sing earlier? Behold our God. We're, we're amazed and we think back at the power of God and we go, behold our God. Look at him. And then we declare how great he is. Oh, how great he is. We declare and we rejoice in his great power. So we, we know and we, and we think about this, this idea that God is powerful. It simply means that he possesses absolute power to do anything in all things, in agreement with his character, right? He possesses all power, absolute power to do all things, anything in agreement with his character. That simply means the reason that telling is there is that there are things God cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot deny himself. We're told that in Scripture. He cannot be tempted by evil. Scripture teaches us that. But according to his character and his will, there is nothing too great for God to do. And what is the supreme demonstration of God's power throughout Scripture? It's his creative ability. His ability to create. Genesis 1 to 2. That is the supreme demonstration of his power. So that all throughout the rest of the Scriptures, the psalmist and and, and the writers of Scripture fall back on creation as a display of God's power. For he formed, for he established, for he founded, for he spoke, and things came to be. Constantly coming back to that. You remember Job. Perhaps you remember that, the, that account of Job and the tragedy that occurs in his life, the trial he goes through, and, and Job comes before God and demands an answer time and time and time again. Well, God answers him, and what does he appeal to? Creation. Were you there when I did this? Were you so wise? As to explain this, he appeals to his creative power and ability. And David does not merely leave God's power as, again, something out there. He doesn't merely look, and look at creation in the mountains and go, wow, look at all that that God created. He is powerful. No, David looks and he sees that, he beholds that. We know that because of Psalm 19, Right? But in Psalm 139, he doesn't just look out at creation and go, wow, God is powerful. David looks and he looks in the mirror. And he looks in the mirror and he says, behold, God is powerful. He has made me. He has formed me. He has knit me together. He has woven me, he says. He expresses the intimate, intentional work of God in his own life. And we need to know that. We need to understand that, that God is intimately and powerfully involved in making us. Psalm 119, verse 73. The psalmist says, Your hands have made and fashioned me. They've made and fashioned me. In Job 10, 11, Job says, You clothed me with skin and flesh, 
and knit me together with bones and sinews. In Isaiah 44, verse 2, Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb. Do you remember what he told Jeremiah? Jeremiah the prophet. He tells Jeremiah, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you, God's creative power to make and to form and to fashion people. His power displayed in creation and supremely so in the womb. So three great theological truths. God's knowledge, God's presence, God's power. In Psalm 139. So the question then is, what do we learn about life? What do we learn about life then? Knowing these things, seeing Psalm 139. What do we learn about life? Let me give you four truths about life this morning. The first one is this. God created life, so he alone rules over life. God created life, so he alone rules over life. In in Acts chapter 3, verse 15, Peter's preaching, and Peter describes God as the author of life. He is the, the author of life. He is the one who created life. Evolutionary theory may have led people to think that and to believe that we're kind of the owner, the, the captain of our own life. No one has authority over us because God is not there. Morality is not there. I dictate what I do and who I am and my life, what's right and wrong. And it may have, it may have brought many people to that day. Many live void of the truth that God made them and that he is their rightful Lord, Right? Many, many function in this rejection of God that has led to this loss of moral absolutes. People are living according to what's right in their own eyes as though they, again, captain and navigate and are in control of their life. But Psalm 139, 16 absolutely contradicts that. It says in verse 16 that God has written our days in his book. The author of life in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were for me before There was yet one of them. The author of life wrote the book. He is the Lord of creation. So Psalm 139 verses 13 and 14, they really reorient us. They remind us that God created us. We are a result of His creative power, His great wisdom. And so David, he rejoices in that. He he rests in that. That's what leads him again. It leads him to pray at the end, praying, God, search me, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there's any grievous way in me. Why? Because David understands that his great appeal in life is not to his own conscience. It's not to the moral authority. His appeal in life is to the one who created him and who is the Lord of his life. That's who he appeals to when he seeks to know what is in me that should not be in there. So I would ask, when when you come and you consider your life, what's right and wrong, what's sinful, what's not sinful, are you appealing to the one who made you? Or are you appealing to your own conscience? Are you appealing to your own desires, your own wants? Who are you appealing to when it comes down to that? 
God created life. He rules over life. The second thing about life that we learn is this, is that life begins at conception. Life begins at conception. Verse 15 we, we see there in verse 15, he's speaking of what? My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Verse 13, it, he says, God, you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. David doesn't say, well, you know, I got to this certain point that, you know, fortunately you showed me is when I became a person, you know, a little bit after this point and this, you know, far, this far down the road or I could think. I, no. David says, you formed me. You didn't form this lump of flesh that then I inhabited later. You formed me. Psalm 139, 13 to 16. Psalm 119, 73. Job 10, 11. Isaiah 44. Jeremiah 1. We, all, we cover all those. All would point and show us that life begins at conception. Listen, you need to know and understand that what is in the womb is not a fetus. It is a baby, a baby. One of the great subtle lies is just to, to re-term what's in the womb. It's a fetus. A fetus is very sterile. A fetus, we can look at scientifically. What's in the womb is a child, a baby, a young boy, a young girl being knit together and woven by the creative power of of God. What's in the womb is a young boy or girl unlike any other. Absolutely unique. Everything from his or her fingerprints to his or her personality, abilities, talents, skills. It's a baby. The third truth about life is that life and personhood cannot be separated. Life and personhood cannot be separated. Those who argue for abortion and euthanasia do so largely because they don't view the baby in the womb or the grandmother in the nursing home with dementia to be a person. They've decided that the inability to live independently, to think and process information leads to the devaluation of life, the meaningless of life, the costliness of life that is too great and should be, de- should be disposed of. They may concede one such, people, one such person to be human, but they don't concede for one such to be a person. It's separated. But the biblical testimony leaves no option for this. There's no option for separating human and person. In Scripture, there's no option for that. There's no line between conception and becoming a person. There's not a point at which you lose your value as a person. You cannot find biblical warrant for that. Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body, and I don't always recommend books from the pulpit, but I would recommend that book. You want to understand why are things the way they are and, and why do so many people think the way they think about issues of of life and sexuality what's brought us to these points how do why do we struggle so with abortion and euthanasia and just rampant disregard to to just sex and just being out there pornography 
homosexuality, transgenderism, all of those things. She talks about that. But in relation to abortion, she writes this. She says, the Christian concept of personhood depends not on what I can do, but on who I am. That I am created in the image of God and that God has called me into existence and continues to know me and to love me. Piercy's right. There's nothing in Scripture that would say, hey, we can, we can separate personhood based on what I'm able to do, on my ability to think, or am I able to, to live independently? No, we don't see that. The concept of personhood in Scripture is on, based on who I am as a man created in the image of God, who you are as a woman created in the image of God. The fourth and final truth that we can take away and see about life here is that sin has brought brokenness to all creation, but God graciously and powerfully works in it. Sin has brought brokenness to all creation, but God graciously and powerfully works in it. I think this is a real question. We read something like 139. I've, I've had people ask me this. You know, you, you, so often you, wanna, you encourage people, oh, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God made you beautifully, fearfully, wonderfully. Well, the, the real question that perhaps some of you have in your mind is this. If God made me and did so, so wonderfully, why am I broken with sin? Why am I embattled with temptation? Why am I suffering with these physical ailments and disabilities? And you say fearfully and wonderfully, why? Why? Listen, the the way we answer that question will greatly determine our stance on life and the sanctity of life. The way we answer that question is very, very important. If we understand that, that God has a plan and that God can and does indeed use our trials and our brokenness for His good purpose and to bring good in the lives of His people, then we will stand for life even in the most trying situations. We, we will. God uses these things, for his glory and for our good. And those two things are inseparable. You can't remove our good from his glory. What brings God the most glory will bring us the most good. Those two can't be drawn apart. They can't be separated. I, I would just give you two examples this morning. Two examples. When we think about this question, it's a hard question. One, one question would be Job. Something comes upon him from outside, right? You, you probably know the account of Job. And, and Job loses all of his children, loses everyone he cares about, all his servants, everything he has except for his wife. He loses it all. He even has affliction brought upon him, upon his skin. He's afflicted. He's greatly grieving. And he cries out to God. In Job 10, he cries out. He makes this appeal, and you see this throughout. But in Job 10, when when he cries out to God, do you know what he appeals to God? 
he appeals to God as the one who knit him together. So Job goes before God. He doesn't just rebel against God in that situation and go, I'm turning my back on him. I'm rebelling. I'm out of here. I renounce him. I no longer believe in him. Job does not do that. Why? Because he knows that even in the midst of his trial and his tragedy, that God's the one who knit him together. So if you just read sometime, read Job 10, and you see throughout that, throughout that chapter as Job makes his plea to God, He's being very real, very vulnerable to God. When he makes that plea, he is depending on, anchored in the fact that God created him. God created him. A second example I would give you is is Paul. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, when he talks about this this thorn in the flesh, that he he said he, he prayed three times for God to take it away. God, remove this thorn in the flesh from me. And God didn't do it. He describes that thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan to harass me. To harass me. It was given to me in the flesh. There's all kinds of debate. What does this mean? What, what is it that Paul had? We, the bottom line, we do not know. You can make good guesses and people go, oh, it was this, it was this, it was that. We don't know. There's indications, but we really don't know what it was. But what we do know is that there was something that Paul says, I don't, do not want it. I want it out of here. I want it gone. I I hate it. I despise it. It hurts. It's a messenger of Satan. It harasses me. But you know what Paul knows? Paul knows that that God works in our lives for his glory and our good. And so Paul recognizes, says, this is given to me to keep me from being conceited. Three times he says, I pleaded for the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Oh God, I'm weak. God, I'm struggling. God, I can't take it. Please get it away. Please. I'm relying on your grace. Listen, that is a very real question we ask. Why? There's things in every one of our lives that we would say, why is this in my life? I don't know. I don't know. Ultimately, I can't come before you and answer every why question you have. There there are many things like that that's just we're not privy to know. We're never going to know why. But in the midst of not knowing all the whys, we need to trust the God who knit us together who formed us and fashioned us. I know that the same man who prayed search me and know me and show me every grievous way in me is the same one who said, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. So in the midst of those prayers, in the midst of those crying out to God, why did you do this? Why will you not take it away? Why is this coming to my life? Why am I battling and struggling in the midst of that? Then we rest in God, you know, God, you are here, and God, you are powerful. You knit me together. You're my creator, and I'm going to cling to you. I'm not going to incorporate situational ethics and morality based on the moral majority and what makes me feel good and what's convenient and comfortable in the moment. I'm going to cling to God. It's all we can do. Psalm 139 anchors us to God's knowledge, His presence, and His power. 
And we need to remain tethered to those things as we stand firm for the sanctity of life. All life. This morning the worship teams will come up and, and lead us in a song, Christ, our hope in life and death. And I want to encourage you, every time, we talked about this as pastors and elders, every time we come to this point, we hear the word of the Lord, we respond in some way. We respond in some way. We, we apply it, we rejoice in it, we reject it, we ignore it, but we respond. We never just don't respond. As we think about life and, and all that's before us as a culture, I want to encourage you this morning to respond in prayer. The, the worship team is going to lead us in Christ our hope and life and death. And I, I want to encourage you just to take this time to pray. And you can do that in your seat. If you want to get on your knees where you are and just stay seated. If you want to stand and pray. If you want to come down here and just pray here at the front. Whatever you want to do. I want to encourage you to pray. They're going to lead us in this song. You can pray for a moment. You can stand and rejoice in seeing this. But I want us to just take a few moments and respond specifically in prayer today. Let's stand, or let's bow, or let's kneel, but let's, let's respond in praising our God who is our hope in life and death, and in praying to Him. Praying to Him on behalf of those, you can stand if you want to stand. Praying to Him on behalf of those who are in difficult situations considering an abortion those who are at end-of-life situations confronting fear and questions, those who are caring for them, those who are vulnerable, those who are in need of care, those who are contemplating the value of their own life because of what they go through, the guilt, shame, loneliness, whatever it may be. Let's pray for those around us. Let's pray that we would be faithful to stand for life. Let's pray together as we sing.